Welcome to The Gathering, a time for reflection, revival, and resistance. I'm Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, co-host of this program with the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. Last year, as attacks on the poor and marginalized in our communities increased, we started The Gathering to create a space where we can hear regularly from the people most impacted across this country. Their prophetic hope and courage in a time of moral crisis inspired the theme of our special gathering watch night service this past New Year's Eve. As we join with 32 state-based coordinating committees to organize the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, we gathered together in North Carolina for a night to light the spark for collective action in 2018. We've split up that live program into three special episodes for the podcast which will feature political analysis, moral articulation, movement music, and interviews with community organizers and impacted people who are calling us to action. Thank you for joining us. It's time for a moral revolution of values. Let me hear you say it, because I need for you to hear yourself say it. I have hope. hope. And I'm keeping hope alive. the sacred text of the poet. Did you hear that? The sacred text of the poet. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. The poet derives this simple metaphorical description of hope as a bird singing in the soul you might know from the sacred Christian scriptures. Dickinson introduces her metaphor in the first two lines. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Then she develops it throughout the poem by telling Yara what the bird does. It sings. How it reacts to hardship, it is unabashed in the storm. Where it can be found, Joyce, everywhere. From chillest land to strangest sea. And what it asks for itself, nothing. Not even a single crumb. It is easy to paint hope as a nostalgic feeling or a pretty metaphor. Even with Dickinson's poem, the image of hope as the thing with feathers can feel at first glance dainty and delicate. But at the heart of the poem is a hope that is not tied to external whims, but rather to an internal strength and resilience. Hope, seasoned hope, enduring hope, Hope that does not disappoint us is unabashed in the storm and can be everywhere if only we have eyes to see.
strikes me that for much of our lives we live in the space between feeling imminent hope, these glimpses of hope, and the hope that comes in the long haul that Joyce has talked about, deferred hope. We get glimpses of hope only to have them dimmed by the realities of the world's suffering and pain and despair and our own suffering and pain and despair. And it is the reality that makes the question of sustaining hope all the more relevant for our day. And so on the eve of this new year, the question for us to ask as a moral people is this, how are we to think about hope in a way that sustains hope through all of life's highs and lows? When everything about our world is shifting and all the certitudes that we have counted on are negated, how do we hold on to hope? Well, for those of us who call ourselves people of faith, it is a deeper question of how does our faith help us sustain hope, a hope that is not rooted in chosenness, a hope that is not rooted in the fidelity of a God who promises no suffering. The hope built not on the possession of power and control. We, like our spiritual ancestors, must learn instead of a hope that knows how to offer prayers of lament, Reverend of a hope that is known sometimes only through the absence of God. But of a hope that refuses to turn its eyes and look away from the suffering and the pain and the despair of our world. A hope that sustains us through theological tensions and cognitive dissonance. Yes, we must practice a kind of hope that invites us into the discomfort of easy answers and half-truths and superficial relationships. A hope that invites us into anger at injustice and oppression and the exploitation of people. Injustice carried out in the middle of the night by congressmen and women who pass tax bills that give a break to the wealthy and burden the poor. A hope that invites us to shed tears for those who suffer from pain and rejection and starvation and war. We must understand hope as theologian Walter Brueggemann describes it the same way that the biblical text teaches us of hope and our spiritual ancestors understood it. That hope, we have to understand hope as a tenacious act of imagination given to us in dreams and oracles and narratives and songs and rooted in absolute authority concerning divine purpose. Hope, we must understand, 
as an act of playful imagination with ill-defined and opened images that suggest without clarity. Hope, we must understand, as an audacious claim said to be the very Word of God. The Word that will stand forever. The Word that will accomplish that which God desires. A Word, Reverend Barber, that is in your mouth a fire that cannot be held in. Hope, such hope, must be our vision for 2018. May it be so. Amen. Somebody say amen, preacher. Amen. Hope, hope, that kind of hope. Carla, where's Carla? Is Carla here tonight? She's not here tonight. I just wanted to thank her for praying for you all the time. Amen. That's Nancy's spouse. I'm serious about that. Amen. Because Nancy has been our pastor uh, in this movement in more ways than one. And this church has always been a place for people of Christian faith and any faith and even non-faith to come and have their hope restored and to get prophetic instructions about going forward. How do you all like the gathering right here at Buller? We want to build this every first Sunday evening to one of the biggest places in the nation where people of all traditions can come, regardless of who you are, and give prophetic words of instruction on the issues of our time. Now we're going to have Jonathan Hartgrove to come and give a homily for tonight uh, on this theme. Just before he comes, there's going to be one other song by a special group I heard at Shaw University, and I'm going to have Yara Allen to introduce them. But you know, Pope Francis every morning does a homily to about 25 people. Now, he's he got a billion members. So any, any pastor that's ever talk, bragged about how many members you have just need to sit down. I mean, you, <laughs> <laughs> But he gets about 25 people, and he does these homilies. And they are so powerful, like these tonight, yes. to help focus and to keep us and to inspire us. And that is what we're having tonight. And as I said, people from all over the world. I want to thank particularly Erica Williams and Jonathan for their diligence in keeping the uh, gathering going. It's an idea uh, that Jonathan and I had. And, we shared it with Nelson and others and Al and others, but it always takes a couple of people that will just stay focused, right? And, and every month we've had clear issues. We've committed to model something. We deal with an issue. We put the people impacted by it at the front. Then we give a word and an instruction. And, and we also have a whole lot of joy. How y'all like this singing tonight? This out. Oh. And, and this is not just feel good. How many of you ever saw the movie Glory? Right? And you, if you haven't seen the movie Glory, Denzel Washington, others, then it's about the, the, the 54th, the mighty 54th, that actually lost the battle that they fought, but they opened it up for others. But in that particular night, the night before they went to battle, they gathered. 
they, they got in a circle and they started singing and praying and testifying. And, and, and you know, in that movie, Denzel didn't even know about faith, but, but he was able to say something. And it gave them the power to go out and face the next day. Not knowing all that would happen, but the power. This is what this is about. Tonight, all over this country, right from right here in Raleigh, people are gathering their focus and gathering their strength for what we will have to do in the days to come. And so to, to lead us into Jonathan, who is a tremendous scholar, he's just written another book on race, and you all really need to pray for him because he's going to make a lot of folk mad. <laughs> I mean a lot of folk. But some of them going to get so mad they're going to get delivered. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I've seen that. I'm telling you, it's, it is something we have not seen on race from a a, 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 a person who grew up around white, white evangelicalism who, who used to be a person who worked for Strom Thurmond. Uh, it's something like, it ain't nothing like an inside report. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? That's right. You know, and so Jonathan has been a dear friend of mine. I love him. We love him as a brother. He is our scribe. He is so much um, uh, to us, and he's going to come. But before he comes, where's Yara? Yara, come and introduce this. this, this where, where, come on and bring them on. You know, there are a lot of singers today who sing about nothing. That's the truth. They sing about nothing. But when you hear people who are singing and they're lifting their voices for justice, you want to connect with those people. So Reverend Barbara and I, some months ago, heard this group, and they stuck with me. They just stuck with me. And when I knew that the gathering was coming, I got on the phone and I started hunting them down. I didn't know name, I didn't know place, but I backtracked through Shaw University and hunted them down. And they said, without hesitation, yes. And so tonight, I want you to open your hearts and get your clapping hands and your dancing shoes because you're about to experience the Berean experience, the Berean experience from Berean Baptist Church. As she said, we are the music department from Berean Baptist Church and we are honored to be here, really honored, so thank you. Oh, glory, oh, glory, 
hands to the heaven, no man, no weapon formed against, yes, glory is destined every day. Women and men become legends. Sins goes against our skin, become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is just a position in us. Justice for all, just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. This is why our roads are sat on the bus. That's why we here tonight gathering with our hands up. And when it goes down and women and men up, they say stand down. So we stand up. Shots swing on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop. So we ran up. One day.
thank you to the Berean Baptist Church for, send, for sending some singers over tonight. If y'all would uh, lend me your ears for just a few moments, a calculus for courage and a strategy for hope. I have to be honest with you here with family at the end of this year, which has felt long in many ways. I want to be honest that as a follower of Jesus in America, 2017 has been a painful and clarifying experience for me. Many of you will understand what I'm talking about. But I thought uh, to focus us on the challenge, I would quote one of my evangelical sisters, Paula White, who pastors a church down in Florida. She was on Fox and Friends just before Christmas and said this. She's not the only one who said it, but she said it at a particularly painful moment as we were celebrating the birth of our Savior in my tradition, she said, isn't it nice to be able to say Merry Christmas and to put Jesus back on the White House lawn? And to have the crusader that we have in our president. Trump just hasn't put Christ back in Christmas, but he's also put prayer back in the White House. He's put justice and religious freedom back in our courts. As I said, she is not alone. Part of the pain of this year for me has been to, to, to recognize with my ear, an ear that was trained in the church, to hear the rhythms of scripture and the language of prayer, to recognize with my ear that I'm not only living in very difficult times and seeing people suffer because of political decisions that are being made, I'm not only living under occupation, but the people who are oppressing me and those I love, they speak my mother tongue. They appeal to the stories that I love most. They hurt my sisters and brothers in the name of my God. This is the painful reality of this year for me. And it has put the biblical narrative in sharp relief. As I have read the scriptures this year, the hope that I've found is a hope that I don't think comes clear except when we're in this kind of situation. So I wanted to just tell one story this evening to recall with you one story. It comes from the book of Judges. If you uh, have some time as you're waiting for the new year to come in this evening, you can find it in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Judges. I won't have time to read it all to you, but I'll tell it as best as I can remember the story of Gideon and the Midianites. You may recall that Gideon also lived under occupation, was living in a time when there was a regime that was oppressing him and his people. For that very reason, when we meet Gideon, he's down hiding in the wine press, threshing out his wheat, because he knew that if people saw that he had to eat, they'd come by and tax it. 
he was concerned about those taxes. What's important to know about the story of Gideon and the Midianites is that the Midianites, who are the oppressor in the story, they're not some strangers from a strange land. No, Midian was also a son of Abraham. The Midianites are family. They speak the mother tongue. They share the same stories. They pray in the same language to the same God. And yet, these Midianites are in charge and are oppressing. They're of the same family, but they've lost their way. God says to Israel in Gideon's time, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you, but you have not given heed to my voice. And so he finds Gideon there hiding in the wine press and says to Gideon, mighty warrior, God calls this one who's, who's hiding, who's afraid, calls him into battle, calls him what he is. And the first thing he calls him to do is he calls him to tear down the altars that his father built and to build a new altar. I was reading that and it occurred to me, Reverend Barber, he calls Gideon to shift the moral narrative before he does anything else. Oh, I want you to read a, lead a battle. I want you to lead your people out of an oppression that they don't even recognize yet. And, before, and yet before you do that, what I need you to do is shift the moral narrative. Before Gideon can lead a resistance, he has to shift the moral narrative of his people. Now it's important to realize Gideon doesn't exactly have a platform. Gideon is not a politician. Gideon is not a, a, a bishop with a billion members. No. Gideon is a worker. He's threshing his wheat. Have we got anybody here from the fight for 15? Gideon is a worker who is doing his work when God calls him to shift the moral narrative by turning off the TV and going public with his protest against the idolatry in the land. When Gideon blows that trumpet, the people respond. They respond to moral articulation and a moral movement is ready for action. It's almost sudden in the story. You should go there and read it. It's at this point where the people are gathered. The people are ready as we are tonight. Or as the story goes, they think they're ready. They think they're ready to go into battle. They come at a moment's notice. They sign up by the thousands. They're, the resistance is ready. They want to go into battle. They don't even want to wait for the coming year. But God tells Gideon that he has to trim his numbers. God tells Gideon that before the battle, he needs to refine the resistance. It's not enough. It's not enough to be against the Midianites. Not enough to know that Sister Paula White is wrong. She's wrong, and she's wrong until she gets right, but it's not enough to know that. God says to Gideon that we need a particular calculus for courage and a strategy for hope. 2003, when we had another evangelical president, 
who was leading us into war in Iraq, I gathered with a small circle of fellow evangelicals in Philadelphia. We were gathered with a mentor, an elder in the movement who was helping us to pray and think about what we could do in that moment. His name was Father Dan Berrigan. He had been in the anti-war movement for some time. I'll never forget what he said to our small circle that sat considering how to be faithful in that time. He looked at us and said, it's good to be with you. Most good things I've been part of started small and got smaller. <laughs> Nonviolent campaigns must always have a phase of self-purification. Recognizing that it's not just about the numbers, it's not just about showing up and being mad and knowing what's wrong, but it's about going deep and unleashing the power of truth in the universe. God says to Gideon, the first thing you got to do with this crowd is say to them one simple thing. One simple thing. If you're afraid this campaign is not going to work, you can go home. It's in the text. You go home and read it. It's in there. If you're afraid it's not going to work, you can go home. There are lots of reasons. Lots of reasons you and I can think of and lots of reasons other folks have been willing to share with us. Why a poor people's campaign is not going to work in 2018. But Reverend Barber said, there are 323 million people in this country. Most of them know that something's wrong. But we just need a few thousand. We just need a few thousand who are willing to come together and commit to a strategy together, a calculus for courage in this moment. Moral action is about trusting this force, that it's more powerful. It's about trusting something more than our ability to engineer change. It's about coming together and trusting the God who can make a way out of no way. So, those who are afraid that it can't work, that it won't work, they went home. And the text says that there was only a third of the people there that had been there when Gideon first put out the call. And at this point, I think Gideon was probably getting a little nervous. Again, I said, I'm not really an organizer, but I've been around organizers enough to know that if, if two-thirds of your people leave, you get a little nervous. <laughs> Gideon is perhaps wondering if they still have the troops to muster the campaign, and yet God comes again and says to Gideon, I need you to run a basic test on your troops. All right. If they've if they've had any kind of basic training, they can pass this test. Send them down to the river, and when they get down there to take a drink, sort them out. There's two kinds. There's some that kneel down, take a knee, scoop the water with the hand, and drink it out of the hand. Because you know when you do that, you can keep your head up, and you can see if anybody's coming. Any soldier that's been through basic training knows that you don't put your head down when you're in battle. But there are always a few people who are so thirsty, who are so hungry that they run to the chow line and they just dive in 
and they just and, and they just get something to drink and 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 God says to Gideon sort those people over here now it's worth observing that Gideon's troops were pretty good he has a 97 percent success rate with this test this basic test of troops 97 percent pass three percent fail and God says to Gideon that three percent that's your army Take them and get ready because God's about to do something with the stones that the builder rejected to make them in to a chief cornerstone. This campaign's strategy for hope is to bring together the rejected stones, not, 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 not the people who have, who have jumped through all the hoops and have all the degrees that would, that would qualify them to, to, to tell those in power how they could do things better. Now, we've, we've seen a lot of those groups come and go and offer proposals for what could change. No, this, the, this campaign is about listening to the people who have been rejected by the systems that exist. Both parties, Republicans and Democrats. Good good strategic folk who think we, we, we can do good for them. No, this, this is a campaign about listening to the voices of those who have been rejected and saying that there's a time to come together, to come together and to show this nation what we can be in the full diversity of who we are. Of being there on December 4th, when we walked into the Congress together and seeing the people who had come from all of these communities across the country, people, the people who are organizing this Poor People's Campaign, the people who are impacted by the issues that this campaign is about, we came together and walked together into that Congress. I looked around, it wasn't a big group. It wasn't a big group, but I looked around and I knew when I saw the people who were there that this is the kind of campaign that Dr. King was imagining in 1967 and 1968 when all those groups were called. This is the kind of campaign that people in communities and on the ground across this country have hungered and thirsted for, many of them for their whole life long. This is the kind of campaign that offers a strategy for hope. And so one Final lesson from Gideon. After he's got this little bitty army of these people who everybody else would reject, Gideon's a little worried. Like you might be worried. Like I get worried sometimes. How is this going to work? How is this going to happen? Gideon is having to face his own fear. And he prays to God out of his fear. And he says, show me something. Show me something to tell me what is going to happen here. And, and it's revealed to him that the people on the other side have some fears too. When you get scared sometimes, it's good to remember that the folk who are in power, they have nightmares at night. What God reveals to Gideon is that the nightmares of the people in the camp are that just the thing that's going to happen with this little group 
is going to destroy all of their hopes and all their dreams for 2018 and for 2020 and for beyond. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Gideon realizes that if he trusts God, he already has the plan laid out before him and that even the people who are in power know that there's one thing that they can't withstand. And that's all these people who've been divided and conquered for so long. Coming together, joining together, and saying to them, we won't even let you be our enemy. Oh, we're against what you're doing, sisters and brothers. We're against what you're doing, but, but this is a movement for everybody. And as Desmond Tutu said with that broad smile one time in the midst of apartheid, when the soldiers came in and circled the church while they were worshiping, he said to the, to the soldiers who were there standing guard, why won't you come and join us? Why won't you come and join the winning side? Here's a movement from the bottom up that has room for everybody. And so I wanted to stop by this evening and just give thanks that the Lord looked down some years ago when some people in this country who have a lot of money, who have a lot of money and were beginning to worry that the demographics were shifting in a way that was gonna make it harder for them to keep their money and their power and they started scheming to take over these state governments and to, and, and to, and to, and to subvert democracy in, in a way that many people hadn't even imagined was possible. When they were plotting and scheming in that way, God looked down and saw a Gideon. I believe he was somewhere down in the tobacco fields in eastern North Carolina. And God called up a Gideon who was willing to take this vision and bring it first to us here in North Carolina. And a lot of people said when he brought this vision of fusion politics to the state house, Brother Spearman, Nancy, and a few others, or there's 17, the 17 little, little group, a lot of people said, well, that, that could never work. That could never work. But God, God calls Gideons to be faithful to the message, to be faithful to a calculus for courage and a strategy for hope. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be among this number this evening. This episode of The Gathering was produced from a live program by Repairs of the Breach, a nonpartisan organization that trains, organizes, and partners with activists across the United States to uplift our deepest moral and constitutional values and redeem the heart and soul of our democracy. Today, Repairers of the Breach is working in partnership with the Cairo Center, the Popular Education Project, and hundreds of local and national partners to lead the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. We're uniting tens of thousands of people across the United States to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. Learn more about the campaign at poorpeoplescampaign.org and connect with and donate to Repairers of the Breach online at breachrepairers.org. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Gathering by subscribing on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher.